Lord. Praise the Lord. Isn't it good to come together and to lift our voices and praise Him together? There's nothing like the people of God. So good to be together with you in the house of the Lord tonight. Trusting in the name of the Lord. Amen. What a great privilege to serve God. What a great privilege to serve God together with you. Amen. Before you're seated tonight, I want to draw your attention to Matthew 22. Say again, how much I do enjoy being with the people of God and looking into the word of the Lord. And I, there's an old joke, I guess. I don't know. Maybe much truth is spoken in jest. So maybe it's more true than just a joke. If you come to church on uh, <laughs> come to church on Sunday morning, you love the church. You show up on Sunday night, you love the preacher. Show up on Wednesday night, you love the Lord. And uh, I do agree with you, Brother Dwayne. This is um, time when we come together. We look into the Word of the Lord together, and. Uh, not saying this because I'm up here, certainly not, but it is where the real strength of our life comes from. You will find strength for your life in the Word of God. And uh, one of my one of my favorite preachers, Brother Jeff Arnold, and if you've ever heard Jeff Arnold, you know he's a wild man. He's filled with passion and inspiration and anointing and all of those things. But it's been almost 30 years ago, he said... Inspiration is the lowest octane to live your life on. Because inspiration comes and goes. But the word of the Lord will stand forever. And no matter the storm that you find yourself in the midst of, you may not be able, as he would say, you may not be able to find your goosebump machine. You may not be able to feel the chills, but the word of God is still true. And it will establish you and it will keep you. Amen. So Matthew 22, I'm going to start with um, verse 15. It's kind of in the middle of the story, but it's the best place to start sometimes. So we'll start there and then we'll fix it all up here in a minute. Verse 15, then went the Pharisees and took counsel how they might entangle him, Jesus, in his talk. And they sent out to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, Master, we know that Thou art true and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, nor regardest not the person of men. So tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? Then say they unto him, Caesar's. (laughs) Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things which are God's. And when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. Now put your mind at ease. I've got something in common with the Pharisees tonight. I haven't come to talk about taxes. What I do want to talk to you about, though, is whose image 
and whose superscription is visible. Amen. Why don't we ask the Lord to help us tonight? Lord, so grateful for the opportunity to be together with your people, to lift your name in praise and in worship, to honor you. I ask now, Lord, that you'd open our hearts and minds to hear your word tonight, that we would receive what you have for us, and that our hearts would be stirred and strengthened and established by the word of God tonight, that you would open our hearts and minds to see what you would have us to do, the ways in which you would have us to live, the manner in which you would have us to live, and the work that you would accomplish in us and through us tonight. Lord, we ask these things in your name. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. Lord bless you. You may be seated. This passage, really, the Pharisees couldn't have cared a whit about the tax question. But it is in the midst of what we would call, and we'd maybe lose sight of this fact, what we would call Holy Week. Because Jesus in Matthew 21 had just entered Jerusalem, his triumphal entry, and uh, he did nothing but stir up the Pharisees when that happened. He came in riding on a colt and they were, people were acclaiming him and he went straight to the temple and he cleansed, purged the temple and And then the halt and the lame came after him and he healed them. And so, man, these things had the Pharisees on the run. They could not figure out what was going on, trying to understand. And so they went to Jesus and they confronted him. And they said, by what authority do you do these things? Now, Jesus knew this wasn't an honest question. And so he said, I'm not going to answer you, but... Unless you answer me, I'll ask you a question. He said, was John's baptism of God or of men? And if you'll answer me that, then I'll answer you. But he had them trapped. Because if they said John's baptism was of God, then Jesus would say, then why did you not accept him? Why did you lop his head off? Why did you not follow after him? But... If he said John, if they said John's baptism of, was of men, they feared the people. The people revered John as a prophet. And if they had said in this big public setting that John's baptism was not of God, they would have had an uprising on their hands. And so they said, we can't tell. <laughs> so Jesus says, well, I can't tell. I can't tell either. He left Jerusalem and then he came back the next day and he began to tell three parables. The first one was, um, was a, a parable about authority and about the two sons and the uh, two sons, one said they would, the father said, go work in my vineyard. The one son said, I, I will not go. But then he repented and went. And the second son said, I will go, but he never went. And so the Lord asked them, said, which one was better? And they said, well, the one who said he wouldn't go, but did go. And Jesus said to them, well, you've rightly answered. And um, the problem is that the publicans and the harlots are going to go in before you because they followed after John and you did not. They were the ones who initially rejected, but ultimately they accepted and they'll go into the kingdom of God before you. 
Jesus hadn't taken the course on how to make friends and influence people. He, he didn't pass that class too well. So he, he tells them another story about, about a, a man who has a vineyard. And uh, he sends people to the vineyard. And the, the servants that were in the vineyard would stone the ones that came. And then ultimately he sends his son. And the, the workers in the vineyard think that, oh, we'll be able to... Uh, uh, if we take the son, then we'll get the vineyard for ourselves. And so they killed the they killed the son. And Jesus then draws the point right home and says, "That's really where you are, and the kingdom is going to be taken from you and given to another because of your action toward the vineyard." And he was talking about they were they were confused. They still saw themselves the chosen people of of God and and the Lord was saying to them because you've rejected you've been disobedient you've done all these things over the years the kingdom is going to be taken from you it's going to be given to another and uh, when uh, the chief priest verse 45 of Matthew 21 when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables they perceived he spake of them they weren't completely dim they figured that part out and when they figured that out they sought to lay hands on him they were so incensed, they were ready to take care of it right there. But they feared the multitude because the multitude took him for a prophet. And so um, chapter 22 begins as a continuation of this to try to mollify them. He gives them the parable of the marriage feast, which all of his invited guests rejected. And so he said, go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in and so again they perceived that they were being talked about and so this is what they said well he's he's cornering us on at every turn he's he's telling all these parables and he's he's just poking the bear he, he's he's just got us at every turn and so they said to themselves how how can we trap him how can we entangle him if he wants to tell stories and he wants to talk smart how can we how can we trap him? How can we entangle him? And so, as men are wont to do, they didn't show up themselves. They sent their disciples. And the Herodians, it's kind of an interesting thing. The Herodians were Jewish people who were sympathizers with Rome. And normally, the Pharisees and the Herodians would have been at each other's throat. But they had this common enemy. You ever notice that? That common enemy can make friends out of the, the toughest enemies of each other. When they get a common enemy, they'll, they'll join forces for whatever it takes to get rid of the common enemy. And so the disciples of the Pharisees and the Herodians, they went out um, to talk to Jesus. And, and notice they're laying a trap. Okay, they just, They're trying to trap him. And notice the way that they feather the trap. Master, he wasn't their master. We know thou art true. They didn't think he was true. And thou teachest the way of God in truth. Come on. They laid it on thick, man. And Lord, we know that you don't care for any man or regard not the person of any man. We know that you're going to give us an honest answer and that you will be courageous in your answer. You're not going to be swayed by the winds of politics or by, by 
reputations or any, any of these things, these emotional things that would normally sway a man. Lord, we know that you are above all of that and you're a man of truth and you teach God's truth and you're courageous. You're not going to do, you're not going to do anything backward. <laughs> Tell us therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar? Now the Lord, as he is wont to do, saw right through them. He's not tricked. He was not flattered. He was not, he, he was not confused at all by their flattery. There is a passage at the end of John chapter 2 where Jesus had done some miraculous things. And the scripture said that there were many at that time that believed on his name. And I thought, man, isn't that what you want, Lord? You want many to believe on your name? But if you keep reading those verses, it says, but he did not commit himself to them. For he knew what was in them. (laughs) The Lord has a way of seeing through the outer facade. And he saw those that were coming after him in John 2 as being those like that were after the loaves and fishes you would see around John 6 whenever he starts to say hard things. All those that came for the loaves and fishes turned and walked away. And Jesus turned to the 12 and said, are you going also? I mean, we had a crowd here when we were breaking bread, when we were passing out fish. There were 5,000 men, women and children beside. And now all of a sudden it's just you and me. But the Lord did not need any man, John said, to tell him what was in men he he already knew and so jesus saw right through this little effort that they were making to try to trap him and he knew who they had sent and so he said why why do you try to why are you testing me he just called them hypocrites you're you're not asking honest questions there's plenty of room in the kingdom for honest questions there's an answer for honest questions and in fact we are told that we ought to have a ready answer for anyone who asks of the hope that lies within we need to have an answer but sometimes and if you've asked if you've answered questions before you've probably run into dishonest questions questions that were meant to lead you into fruitless and pointless discussions and at some point you have to develop enough discernment in yourself to say there's no point in us wasting time in this conversation because you're not really interested in the answer so they said is it lawful that they're playing on the natural tension between israel and rome and the old testament law and who are you supposed to worship And so they say, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? Jesus said, well, show me the money. (laughs) Show me the money. And he said, whose picture is on the money? Oh, and who's writing? Whose name is on the money? Oh, that's, that's Caesar's. Now, I suspect... That they thought what they were doing was leading him into a trap. They they wanted him to answer. They um, there was there was a group in Israel at this time called the Zealots. Those were the ones who were you know they would they were ready to rise up, and take water pistols, charge the gates of hell. They were ready to go after Rome with just slingshots and bows and arrows. They were really do whatever just to just to free Israel. And and so there were they trying to find out is jesus one of those is is he gonna put his foot down because this is caesar's image on the coin and we're not going to have anything to do with caesar 
they, as taxes are, a very emotional topic. They went right to the heart of things that might stir up emotion in Jesus. Said, come on, this is an issue that everybody's concerned about. Politics. Everybody's always concerned about politics. So what is right? Should we give our coins? Should we pay tribute to Caesar? Or not? And Jesus just asked them effectively, who owns the money? Whose picture is on the money? And whose superscription is on the money? So they answer Caesar's. And he gives them an answer I don't think they were expecting. He said, then render unto Caesar those things that belong to Caesar. Those things which are Caesar's. What he was saying was, when you showed me the penny... It has Caesar's picture on it. It has Caesar's name on it. You're playing by Caesar's rules. And so I know there's quite a bit of discussion from time to time about render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's. But sometimes we don't carry on. And there's the second half of that verse that says, and unto God, the things that are God's. This is really where the heart of the question is. Jesus says, you're coming just trying to trap me, but you've, you've missed an important point. Right. It's not just what are we going to do about taxes and what are we going to do about Caesar, but you have to understand there are some things that belong to Caesar and there are some things that belong to God, and it's a good idea not to confuse those two things. Right. Now, the interesting thing is when they said, is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? Jesus said, render unto Caesar's, unto Caesar, the things that are Caesar's. That word there for render is not pay or it is, it's actually a stronger thing that says give back to Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. What they were saying, is it permissible? Is it okay? Is it lawful? Jesus took it one step further and said, this is your moral obligation. If something belongs to Caesar and he demands it back, you have a moral obligation to give it back to him. But by the same token and with a stronger claim to ownership, you might say, those things that belong to God, you have a stronger obligation to give to God the things that belong to God. And though they probably didn't realize it in the moment, he was asking them, a very important question about the condition of their own life and it resonates all the way into our own present world. Maybe they did understand it because the scripture said when they heard these things, they marveled and they left him and they went their way. But Jesus is, I think, reminding us tonight that there are things that belong in this present world. They are temporary things, and it's very easy for us to get caught up in these things, but we constantly need to be asking ourselves on all of these things, jobs, promotions, money, houses, lands, whatever, all of these things are temporary. They are stamped with the image of the earthy, as Paul would say. They belong to the temporal world, and as such, we're not, we're not some super spiritual ethereal beings or something living above this this is reality we all have to have jobs we have to eat we have to we need food clothing and shelter we need a place to stay jesus did not pray in john 17 he said i don't pray that you would take them out of the world 
But he says, I do pray you would keep them from the evil that is in the world. So the point tonight is that as much as we are ingrained and forced to be in this earthly economy, there is something that's incumbent on us on a daily basis, hourly basis, minute by minute. What is the image of the things that I'm dealing with? Am I dealing with something that is in Caesar's economy? Am I dealing with something that's in this world's economy? Or am I dealing with eternal things in my own life? Whose image and whose superscription, those are the things that tell us to whom we need to be ready to give those things. It's funny that even our money nowadays has our Caesars pictures on it. Politicians, presidents. <laughs> whose image is on there? It's determined by who the government is. What is currency? What is allowable? And we have to realize that as wise and as prudent as we try to be and we want to be self-sufficient, we want to take care of ourselves, at the end of the day, all of that stuff is temporary and it can go away in a moment's notice. We're headed toward, they would love to have us in a cashless society so that there is no physical currency that can be handed around but everything has to be done digitally. And one reason why they'd like to do that is because it gives them flexibility. You may go to bed one night, a wealthy person, everything gets revalued, and you wake up the next morning and there's nothing there. Because you're playing in Caesar's economy. And we're forced to do that, but we need to remember that just because those things are temporary in the same way, our participation in that economy is temporary. We're not going to be there forever. You're not going to have that job forever. You're not going to live in that house forever. You're not going to deal with this pressure and that pressure forever. There's coming a day when we move out of that economy, but there is an economy we can participate in that is eternal and forever lasting in the heavens. Amen? So whose image and whose superscription? Does it belong to Caesar or does it belong to God? Of course, the things of... The things of God, healing, salvation, all of those things, those are things that belong in the realm of faith. Caesar may use coins, God uses faith. That's the way we operate in that economy. That tax that the, that the Pharisees brought up was probably the most offensive tax because it was, in all likelihood, it was the poll tax. And most of their other taxes they could pay with local currency or whatever. But the poll tax, they were required to pay it using Roman coinage. And so it was particularly distasteful for a Jewish person to have to go and exchange some money, buy some Roman money, and then offer that as a tribute to Caesar. You can imagine how distasteful that would be, not just from a political standpoint, but also because they took very seriously Moses saying, you don't make any graven image, you don't bow down to anybody else. Well, here's a graven image, and I'm offering this as tribute to Caesar. And there were all of these developments within Roman law and and uh, within the Caesars themselves about whether or not they were to be treated as gods and there's some discussion about whenever all of that came to fruition but there certainly were these worshipful overtones along the way and it was just distasteful to the Jews and the Lord said essentially don't get overwrought about all of that I don't know if you've paid attention this week but um, and, and it's not 
if you know anything about our world and about our culture, it shouldn't have shocked you that the Grammys, you know, they had some wacko deal on Sunday night. Because, I mean, it's not like they've been worshiping the Lord all the way up till Sunday night and then they just went off the deep end, right? This has been kind of an ongoing thing. But it does, if whatever, I, if you don't know anything about it, don't bother going to research it. Um, but if it's been pressed upon you and you have seen these images, it should, it should draw a stark difference in your mind that there is an image of things that are in the world. And our participation in the world, we need to be of a purpose that we will limit our participation to the absolute degree necessary. Because there are images and, and there are superscriptions, if you will, of items and things in the world that are completely contrary to God. And we are so much better off if we just separate ourselves from those things. You say, I'll have my job. I'll make my money. I'll take my money to the grocery store. I'll buy my food. I'll take care of my necessities. But when it comes to entertainment, forget it. I'm, I'm holding everything close to the vest because where I don't have to participate, I don't want to participate. There are so many things that would pull us and we go degree by degree, a little bit here, a little bit there. Well, this won't hurt. That won't hurt. We wake up and we are the proverbial frog in a kettle where we have gone further than we ever imagined that we would go. But whose image are we chasing after? And whose superscription is on the coins that we're using for currency? We better be careful about where we spend our energy, where we spend our time. And the question becomes one for us about me. Okay, I, I, have to, I have to participate. I have to live in this world. I have to I have a family to provide for. I have necessity of a job. But what is, how much do I let this impact me? Am I able to just take the money and let it do what it needs to do? Or am I shaped by the culture that I live in? This is what the writer said. Paul said, don't be conformed to this world. One translation says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Paul says, don't be conformed. There's an image of an outward pressure there that comes. And you you get this picture of an image on a coin, right? you ever taken that take a penny and you put it in that you have to put a penny in a quarter and then they the little you pull the little handle thing and it smooshes the penny and comes out with a completely different image on it it's what the world wants to do to you you feed your money into the machine then you jump in there you're going to come out on the other side unrecognizable if you allow the world to squeeze you into its mold paul said don't be conformed but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. When there's this outward pressure, Paul said, the, the Holy Ghost, there's a transformative power in our lives. And when the world would squeeze from the outside, there needs to be something from the inside pushing back. There is a transformation that pushes back against the image of the world. Because if we're not careful, the world will put its image on us. You say, how do you mean? Well, next time you're in the grocery store, You just look when you're checking out. You just look in the aisle. You'll see the image of the world. 
All those magazines, people, and then the ones that really have no reputation after all of that. They'll tell you everything that the world thinks is valuable. Youth, beauty, status, money, celebrity. This will tell you what the world wants you to think is valuable. But you've got to have something that's pushing back saying, I'm not going to shape my life. I'm not going to allow my life to bear the image of someone who's chasing after these things that are just vapor and they will escape my grasp. And they're temporary at best. Most of us, for most of us, they're just completely unreachable. But for the very few that do manage to grasp them, they're so temporary and they're so fleeting. There's got to be a transformation of the Spirit of God that pushes back against the image of the world and says there are eternal things that matter. And there are eternal values that will shape your life. Whose image are we bearing? (laughs) The promise is, 1 Corinthians 15, if we are in Christ, that... In the eternal sense, we have borne the image of the earthy, he said. He, Paul's making a comparison. The original man, Adam, was made a living soul. The, the last Adam is a quickening spirit. And, and the first man, Adam, was made of the earth. He's earthy. But the second man, the last man, Adam, was from heaven. He was heavenly. And as we've borne the image of the earthy, that's what we're dealing with now. If we're faithful, we will bear the image of the heavenly. This is the hope that we have. This is why Paul would write to the church at Galatia, Galatians chapter 4. These churches he wrote and he said, I have travailed in birth again. He said, I was there when you prayed through. He's the founder of those churches. So he can say, I travailed in birth. I gave birth birth to you in a spiritual sense i was a spiritual midwife for you but he said for me it didn't stop there he said i travail in birth again what for until christ be formed in you there is something that has to happen in our lives that as we grow in christ the image of christ grows in us and those that we come in contact with begin to see a different kind of an image, not the image of the world, not the shape of the world, not the values of the world, but a value and a, uh, a, an image that has been shaped by the very presence of God. It's what Paul said, Romans 8. We know all things work together for good to them that love the Lord, to them that are the called according to his purpose. Whom he did foreknow, he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed. To the image of his son. The Lord is desiring of us that he would be able to put his image onto us. This becomes the true mark of ownership. The Lord said, whose image is on this coin? They said Caesar's. He says, well, then this must belong to Caesar. And if he wants it back, you've got to give it to him. Now the question for me is whose image is on me? Don't forget the fact that in the very beginning... We were created in the image of God. The intention from God from the very beginning was that we belong to him. He put his image on us. And even though we've been marred by sin, there still is a residue in us that is made in the image of God. It is a redeemable 
residue. There's nothing else in creation like man. Don't let the evolutionists fool you. There is not a smooth continuum from single cells to multiple cells to non-vertebrates to vertebrates to humanity. There is no such smooth continuum. But you take the highest vertebrate that you want, there is a quantum leap between that and a man. The world would have us believe that a pig is a dog, is a chicken, is a boy, that it's all the same thing. It's not that way. We were made in the image of God. The rest of creation spoken into existence. But he knelt down and he formed man from the dust of the earth and he breathed into man the breath of life. He put his image on us. He stamped us. And we are intended to be his for all of eternity. Where we get into trouble is when we allow the enemy to steal that. He doesn't have the power to do it. We abdicate and we yield to him that image. But when, in redemption, this to me is the beautiful thing. I'm coming to a close. Because while there is a difference between the image of the world and the image of God and what God would want, the truth is that none of us have the ability to impose that image upon ourselves. This is why... Paul said, it's by that transforming power. There's a renewing of your mind. That's the power of the Holy Ghost. But you start to, think about, start to think about what happens at salvation. He puts his image on us. We are baptized into his body. But it's more than just his image. There's also this superscription, this idea of whose name is on the coin. It's not just whose picture but whose name? May I remind you, you've been baptized in Jesus' name. It, it is not insignificant. It is not just some empty ritual. Don't let anybody kid you. It is not even an outer sign of an inward work. There is something spiritual that happens when you are baptized, when you go down in the water, in Jesus' name, in faith, there is something spiritual that happens. Amen. And I am convinced that when Paul wrote Romans 10 and he said, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, I am convinced he was talking about baptism. Because Acts twenty two sixteen, Paul is telling the story and he's telling about when... When uh, there was baptism taking place and the instruction was arise and wash away your sins. Arise, be baptized and wash away your sins calling on the name of the Lord. That verb means invoking the name of the Lord. We were, when we were baptized, his name got put onto us. You remember Exodus, children of Israel coming out of Egypt. And the heathen nations that were around them, they worshipped all kinds of gods. And the Lord was in the process of giving his law, revealing his law to the nation of Israel. And all these heathen nations, they would, they would go find beautiful places. And that would remind them that there must be a deity somewhere. And so they would say, well, let's build an altar here and let's offer sacrifice. We don't know God, but he must be close by because this looks great. And this is really what happens with modern spirituality too by the way 
And they would just worship whomever they would sacrifice, wherever they were reaching. They were seeking after God. God says to the nation of of Israel, he says, it's not going to be that way with you. Exodus chapter 20. You don't worship like that. There's a place. Brother Williams preached it. In this place. There is a place for worship. And that place is where my name is. And the Lord said to the nation of Israel, he said, where I, everywhere. Now this is, this is, I think this is prophetic. It's in the book of Exodus. One tabernacle, one, one holy of holies. The Ark of the Covenant was in the holy of holies. There's only one Ark of the Covenant with two angels and four wings. Just one place for the Spirit of God to dwell. And you could say, man, his name was in that holy of holies. But in the book of Exodus, there's a strange phrase because the Lord said to the nation of Israel, everywhere that I record my name, I will come and bless you. I think he's looking forward to right now when he has recorded his name there and there and there and there. In every one of these places, in every place that I record my name, I will come and I will bless you. Don't rush out and worship every old place. Your heart, you are the temple of God. The Holy Ghost dwells inside of us. And he has written his name upon our hearts. Not just his image, but also his superscription. In the New Testament, there was a time of the New Testament. There was a common thing because communication wasn't so great. Um... You'd get traveling, itinerant preachers come by. Well, how do you know this guy? How do you know what his doctrine is? How do you know what what he believes? How do you know he's not some charlatan? So there was this idea of letters of commendation that they would bring, an apostle might bring with them. And uh, that would give weight to their ministry and their character and they could be accepted and so forth. And this was an issue for Paul. Now, Paul made a, perf- made a choice. He said, I'm not going to go where other men have preached. I'm going to go where nobody's preached, and I'm going to start churches there. So the heathen didn't care about letters of commendation. Paul could just go, and he would come, and he said, I didn't come with enticing words of men's wisdom. I came in the demonstration of the Spirit and power. So I come in here. There's miracles. I tell you what's going to happen. If you repent, you'll be filled with the Holy Ghost. You'll speak in tongues. And what he said happened. He laid his hands on them. They, people would speak in tongues. He had found a church. And so Paul, 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians 3, he's writing to the church at Corinth because some of these guys that would go around, they had to write their own letters of commendation. They had to commend themselves. And Paul says, do we begin again to commend ourselves? Or need we, as some others, letters of commendation, epistles of commendation, or letters of commendation from you? Notice what he said. He said, you are our epistle. You're my letter. The way you live is proof of my ministry because your your life is like an open book it's more than just having the name of jesus written on you but you actually become an entire letter of commendation by the way and the manner in which you live by the the image that's there and the superscription that's there he said you're our epistle 
written in our hearts, known and read of all men. In, in other words, to Paul, he's saying, you're my encouragement. I don't have to take a letter with me. I remember you. I can go in confidence knowing that where I go, the Lord is going to meet. He's going to be there. But verse 3 is interesting. He said, for as much as you're manifestly declared to be the epistle of Christ ministered by us, there is a superscription on your life. You're a, a letter about Christ. Your entire life is testimony to the goodness, the power, the grace of God. Ministered by us. Written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not in tables of stone, but in the fleshy tables of the heart. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Paul says, you allowed us to minister and the Holy Spirit turned you into a letter of commendation for my ministry. What was he saying? He's saying, not only is there an image of God in your life, but there is the clear handwriting of the Spirit of Christ in your heart. Spirit of the living God, not written on tables of stone, but in fleshy tablets of your heart. Why don't we stand together tonight? Jesus said that coin had clear marks of ownership. What I want tonight is there to be clear marks of ownership on me. I want to bear the image of the heavenly one. I know that's going to be fulfilled completely one of these days. But we have the earnest of our inheritance. And to some degree, the image of the heavenly can be born even amidst all of the earthy things that are around us. He is able to work and bring that to pass in our lives. But not just his image. I want there to be an understanding that there is his name applied to my heart and my life. And even beyond that, that it is a living epistle of his grace and his power. Amen. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? Lord, we thank you, Lord, for what you have promised to us and what you have made available to us. I pray, Lord, that you would let it be known that you are the owner of these bodies. You are the owner of this life. You put your marks of ownership on us. Lord, not, not Caesar's image, not Caesar's name, but who do we turn our hearts toward? To whom do we worship? To whom do we yield ourselves? That, that part of us that is deepest and, and most clearly, Lord, available for use, God. We want to turn those things to you. We want to put them into use for you, that we would worship you and you only to the point that your image would be formed in us that the world around us would recognize your image, not to our glory, but that we would point them to you and to your power and to the way in which you work in men's lives. You save us, Lord, from ourselves. You redeem us from sin. Lord, and you have put that image and that inscription upon us. You have sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. We thank you for it tonight. Let it have its complete work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Lord, we thank you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise your name, Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Lord bless you. We will see you this coming weekend. Just remind you of announcements and check the website, check your bulletins, and uh, we will see you on Sunday. Lord bless you.